you have your Bibles, you can turn with me in them to Genesis 1. I mean, excuse me, Genesis 15, verse 1. I'm not going back to Genesis 1. I've uh, been there, done that. Today we step formally into this very consequential chapter of Scripture. In Genesis 15, we find one of the pillar arguments to the teaching of salvation by grace through faith, but also about the believer's relationship to the law of Moses, the relationship between believers and what we call good works. To this end, we have some work to do over the next uh, several weeks, establishing first the historical narrative, and then considering the numerous ways that the New Testament uses this particular passage of Scripture to help us understand God's working through the ages. Now, we're not going to get real far today. You notice that our text is just verse 1 of Genesis 15, and that's where we read today. In that text, the Bible says this in Genesis 15, verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. And thy exceeding great reward. Now, it's been a little while, so let's uh, set ourselves back into the historical narrative, the, con- the context of the narrative that we find ourselves in. Abram was in this place called Ur of the Chaldees with his family. The family then travels up the Tigris and Euphrates rivers, uh, up what we call now the Fertile Crescent, and it ends up settling in this place in the north in Syria called Haran, where Abram's father, Terah, then dies. God then calls Abram to leave the remainder of his family, to leave Terah and the remainder, or not not Terah, Terah's dead, but the remainder of his family there in Haran and to go south to the land of Canaan, to the land that God says, I will show thee of. And he does so with three promises in mind. First, that God would make of Abram a great nation. Second, that God would bless Abram and make his name great. And third and finally, that through Abram all the families of the earth would be blessed. Now take note of these promises and think through what is implicit in them. First, of course, land is implicit in them. God sends him into a land and says, I will make of you a great nation, implying, and he will, of course, formalize, as a matter of fact, here in Genesis 15, that he would give them that land wherein they find themselves. And second, uh, uh, it's very important, and this is going to be important next week as we consider verses 2 through 6, Very important implication to the promise that God would make of him a great nation and that through him all the world, all the nations of the world would be blessed would be that Abraham would have a child. He has to have a child. And to this point in their lives, with Abram being 75 years old and Sarai being 65 years old, they had not had a child. So they travel. Now, that's at the end point. They travel at that point down to Egypt. They come back from Egypt. They settle back in the land. Lot settles in Sodom, gets himself into some trouble. Abram saves Lot from captivity. We talked through all those things. And yet through all of this, having started at 75 and 65 and now experiencing all of those things, Abram and Sarai still do not have a child. And this is a really big deal to Abram. And we might say that we understand why. God had made these promises These promises are almost completely dependent upon Abram having a child. Abram and Sarai are getting older, and yet they have no child. And through this, Abram was ushered into a place of obvious vulnerability, rooted in the dissonance between what 
he knows and what he doesn't know. What he understands of the things God has said and what he can't understand of the circumstances within which he finds himself. He knew that God had made these promises. He's certain that God will bring them to pass. But he doesn't know God's timing. He doesn't know God's plan. And he doesn't know if maybe he, maybe he misunderstood. And this is indeed a vulnerable place to be. Because when God makes promises, or when we believe we know what God wants for us, we as followers of God then begin to erect in our minds the ways that we expect these promises to play out. Or perhaps the way we think God ought to bring to pass what we expect of Him because of what He has told to us. But things don't always go the way we think they should. Things don't always go the way we thought they would. And when this happens, this can put us into a very vulnerable state, into a, in fact, a confused state. And this is the state into which we might imagine Abram found himself on that day. And it was in relation to this state that God speaks to Abram in a vision. And it is this thing that I would like to actually talk about today. It's this thing that I'd like for us to consider, this vulnerability, what I called in my title, the vulnerability of the unknown. Abram is walking in consistency with what he believes the Lord would have for him, and he's confused. And we read God say this in verse 1. Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield, and thy exceeding great reward. Do not be afraid, God says. Now, this word fear is somewhat general in our Old Testament scriptures. It is only the second time we've come across this word uh, since we've been studying Genesis. So it's the second time that the Bible, that the Old Testament scriptures use this word. It's the same word that Adam used to describe his emotional state when he heard God's voice in the garden after he knew that he was naked and he was fearful. It's a word for true fear, for dread, for terror, that sort of a fear. But it also is used more generally to speak of uncertainty or concern, a trepidation. This, uh, I think a good word is vulnerability, that kind of a vulnerable fear, that uncertainty fear, that not quite knowing what's coming next and, and, and feeling that, that concern. And this, we would believe, is probably the idea here for Abram. Not that he was terrified. He was probably not waking up at night in cold sweats, uh, afraid of something, because that's not really the context that we find here. Instead, what Abram is, is he is concerned. He is feeling vulnerable. He, he, he doesn't, but perhaps he wonders, did I miss something? Did God make his promises to me and then somehow I fell short of them? Every year goes by where he had cut all ties. He had left his home. He had left his family all on the confidence of God's promises only to be sitting in this land in, in, in which he's a stranger. And he's not in a house. He's in a tent. And he's a sojourner in this land. And he's wealthy. And to that extent, we would presume he's comfortable. But he is empty-handed as it relates to the promises that he was there to receive. Isn't that interesting? He was wealthy. He was comfortable but he was empty-handed as it relates to the promises that he was there to receive, and this put him into a state of unknown, a state of vulnerability. Every day would become a day of greater uncertainty, of discomfort, of confusion, perhaps of discouragement. What was God doing here? Isn't there a plan? Wasn't there a plan? I thought there was a plan. 
Did I do something wrong? Was my sojourn in Egypt the final straw, God? Did you decide to change your mind about blessing me because I ended up in Egypt? Maybe you decided that I'm not the guy after all. Maybe I'm really not worth all that trouble. Did I not settle in the correct place in the land? Was I missing something that I was supposed to be doing? I mean, Abram kept himself away from Sodom. He kept himself away from Gomorrah. Maybe he didn't settle in the right place. Maybe he's missing something. And perhaps you've been there before too. Maybe you're there right now. Where you had all confidence that you were doing what God wanted you to do. And you got going with tremendous enthusiasm and you were ready to go and you moved. But as time goes by, things don't go the way that you envisioned they would. You had expectations based upon God's promises, based upon the leading of the Lord in your life, based upon wise counsel. And you step into the circumstances and they're just not going the way you envisioned them. You aren't seeing what you expected to see. You aren't feeling the way you expected to feel. And you wonder if maybe you messed it up. If maybe you missed something. If maybe you thought you knew things, but you really didn't know what you thought you knew. And I think this is kind of where Abram found himself in here in Genesis 15. A place of fear, of not knowing, of vulnerability about what he was doing and how things were going. And God speaks to Abram in this moment, and the words that he speaks to him are these. Fear not, Abram. This is the first of 62 fear nots that we find in our Bibles often spoken by God and His angels to men with whom they interact, reminding us regularly that the God of the Bible is a God who, uh, though He is to be feared, right? Uh, we, we, we recognize that God is a God who is to be feared in the reverential sort of a way. It, recognizing His authority, understanding His power and His sovereignty. He is holy. He is worthy of reverence. He is worthy of obedience. So God is certainly not saying, do not fear the Lord in the idea, in the context of Proverbs, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. But much to the rather, the idea here is that the God of the Bible is a God who is trustworthy and good intention toward those who love him. The fear not here is don't be, don't, don't be discouraged. Don't be worried as you walk down the path of your relationship with the Lord because the God of the Bible is one who is both trustworthy and who is good intentioned toward those who love him. The God of the Bible is not a calamitous, vindictive, petty, or fickle God. He is constant. He is predictable. And his constancy and his predictability work themselves out through graciousness and long-suffering in the lives of those who walk with him. Through a deep and abiding love, the kind that defies a certain degree of verbal description, though many have tried, we find God to be a God who is unchangeable and who is good. Many have tried to describe the nature of our God's intentions toward us. One of my favorite descriptions is in the hymn, The Love of God. I think it's the third verse, my favorite verse of the hymn. Could we with ink the oceans fill and were the skies of parchment made? 
were every stalk on earth a quill and every one a scribe by trade. To write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry. Nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. A feeble, though beautiful, poetic attempt to express the kind of love that God has toward those who love him. But yet even in such dramatic and illusory words, there is nevertheless an insufficiency to articulate properly the kind of love that God has to us. So that the only true way to actually contemplate and appreciate in its fullness the love that God has for us is to appreciate in its fullness what God has done for us in love. So Romans chapter 5 verses 6 through 8 tells us, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us. And that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. How can I possibly understand, comprehend, or indeed express the kind of God, the intentions that God has toward me, the intentions and the love that God has toward me? I mean, we, we, we've, we've memorized some verses this month to that end, right? How precious also are thy thoughts unto me, O God. How great is the sum of them. If I should count them, they are more in number than the sand. When I awake, I am still with thee. We have memorized that idea of the thoughts of God being toward us and toward us to good. We'll consider that more even in just a moment. But the true expression, the very foundational reality of the love that God has to us is realized in the fact that when I was an enemy of God in my minds through my wicked works when I was without strength in myself to do anything about my sinful state and the enmity that existed between myself and God. In that state in which I found myself, God gave the thing that was absolutely most precious to him in order that I might be reconciled to him. And that is love. And that is the fullness of the expression of God's thoughts toward me. How great are those thoughts toward me? How constant and how loving are those thoughts toward me? It's that while I was yet sinner, it's that before I was even born, God sent his son to die on the cross that I might be saved. To bear my sin, that I might have a relationship with him. Say, Pastor, how do I know God loves me? He's already done everything he can do to prove it. You cannot do more than what he has done to prove his love toward you. And whereas few men would even die for their loved ones, much less their friends, much less still their enemies, God sent his only son to die for the worst among us, while yet sinners, while contemplating no remorse, while contemplating no repentance. And that is the only true way to understand God's love. To understand Christ's actions is to understand God's love. To contemplate the cross is to contemplate God's love. To appreciate Christ's suffering is to appreciate God's love for you. So that to read of God reaching out to Abram and saying, fear not, is to understand the first glimmers of something very important about our God. That our God sits in the heavens with his best intentions unto us. And that's a profound and indeed a comforting thought. Now, not every man will be a recipient of God's best intentions. He that believeth is not condemned, John 3.18 says, but he that believeth not is condemned already because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
Those that reject the love of God will themselves find on the day of judgment that God will look at them and say, Depart from me, I never knew you, ye worker of iniquity. Those that resist God, those that rebel against God, receive the natural consequences of such in their lives. But this is not God's intentions toward you. And so Abram, as he left his home and he went down into that land that God promised would be his, and God made these promises and he lived in faithfulness to his God as best he could, not perfect, making mistakes, but bringing himself to that place where he was, where he believed the Lord wanted him to be. He was confused because it wasn't working out the way that it was supposed to, and God uses this time in Genesis 15 to remind him, fear not. The God who created Abram, among all the other grand and mighty things which he created in the universe, knows him, loves him, and has him on God's mind. And that same God who created all things, among all the things in the universe, knows your name, loves you, and has you on his mind. And this should not work in me some sort of superiority complex, some sort of pride, some sort of entitlement, Because when I regard this truth, I cannot help but recognize that there is nothing in me that makes me worthy of this regard, but rather that in my state of unworthiness, God's love is so strong, so determined, and so constant that it pierces the darkness of my own sinful condition and it shines into my heart nonetheless. Christian, you are not loved because you are good. You are not loved because you are special. You are not loved because of anything in you Therefore, it does not lift us up with pride. Instead, it should humble us. I am humbled by the goodness of God upon my unworthy soul. I am comforted with the reflection that God's thoughts toward me are thoughts of good. We're memorizing Psalm 139, 17, and 18 this month. The same idea is echoed toward the nation of Israel in Jeremiah 29, verse 11. God telling them, I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord. Thoughts of peace and not of evil to give you an expected end. And God does not just say here, fear not. Fear not, Abram. Don't be in this place of concern and of vulnerability. Have confidence. Your God has not changed. His promises have not changed. His intentions have not changed. But then he says something else. He says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, to this point in Abram's life, he has seen the reality of the first part of that declaration. I am thy shield. Remember when Abram went down to Egypt and he did his best to protect himself from the predations of the people there by lying about his wife. He says, my wife's a pretty woman. They're going to want to kill me for my wife. So he asked his wife and he himself lied saying she is my sister, sort of lied, at least misrepresented the, the, the nature of the relationship. And did this thing so that he could preserve his own health and his own wellness, thinking that he needed to do so in order to protect himself. And his plan didn't really work. I mean, it did. He, he was protected, and, 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 his wife, and, and he and his wife ended up coming out not, not worse for the wear for it. But his plan didn't work. His wife was taken from him because no one thought she was his wife. They thought she was his sister. 
And yet, even in this, God protected him, right? God shielded him. God punished the house of Pharaoh. And then his wife was restored to him. God intervened. God stepped in in the point where his plan was being interfered with. And he protected this man, Abram, and his wife, Sarai. And in this, we see this idea that God was his shield. Abram being reminded that he certainly could have trusted God. And God certainly could have protected him without having to lie. Abram then comes back into the land of promise. And he pursues the five-army confederacy of Chedeliomer. God blesses Abram's efforts. He recovers his nephew. He, doesn't, he refuses to associate himself even by taking anything of the spoils, lest the king of Sodom be able to glory somewhat in Abram's wealth or victory. And he's brought back with much fanfare and wellness. So that it, it may not have been that Abram was actually deeply concerned about whether or not God was his shield. Seems as though by this point, Abram was pretty settled in the idea that God was his shield. God was his protector. But the second idea, and thy exceeding great reward. I'd like us to think through what this phrase means this morning. And then we'll think through the implications of Abram's life in our own. If we compare the idea of God being Abram's shield with God being Abram's reward, the most natural conclusion is the idea that in just the same way that God was Abram's shield and God being Abram's shield led to Abram being protected, God being Abram's reward would, be, would lead to Abram being rewarded or blessed. And this is certainly not untrue in the least, that though Abram may not always have understood the nature of God's protection or the nature of God's blessing, yet he could know that God himself was reliable. He could trust that in God's way and in God's time, he would be given those things that God had promised to him. And by the way, uh, we say that God had not seen those yet, but even when I say, said before that Abram was wealthy and comfortable, that is a part of the blessing, right? Uh, he did leave everything that was stable in his life and his family and his support system. And he went down to this place where he sojourned and yet he became a very influential and strong man in the land. So much so that by arming his servants and the servants of those who were his confederates, they were able to take on and defeat a five nation army that had gone against Sodom and Gomorrah and defeated them. And so we see this, that Abraham could be at peace and not be fearful, but rather hopeful and expectant and faithful, waiting on God's timing to bring to pass the things which God had promised, even though God had not yet fully revealed what those would look like in the end. And this is an important idea to keep in the front of our minds as we think through Abram's wrestlings and God's promise here. As we walk through this mortal life, it's important for us to re remember the exhortation that God gives through Isaiah in Isaiah 55, 8, and 9, where God says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. Christian, just because you have a measure of confidence that God is working, this does not mean that you are necessarily going to be able to discern or understand how it is God is doing it or exactly even what God is doing. 
We talk about the idea of hindsight being 2020, right? And spiritual hindsight's the same way. A lot of times, the way that we understand what God is doing is by looking back upon what He has done. Because it's very hard to necessarily understand what God will do. Because God's ways are not our ways. God's thoughts are not our thoughts. And they're higher, and they're better, and they're greater than ours. So that the way that we might contemplate something ought to go to pass, when we read the promise of the Lord, or we have a confidence that the Lord would have us to go in a direction, we have a vision about what that's supposed to look like. And we erect in our minds, okay, well, if this is what God said is, is going to happen, then this is how it's going to happen. But see, God didn't tell us how. He just gave us confidence about the what. We filled in the how. We filled in the, well, then this must happen first and that must happen first. Abram says, well, God's going to make of me a great nation. Therefore, I must have a child. Therefore, it must be soon because Sarah's getting old and I'm getting old. And see, but God had a different way. God had a different plan. It wasn't that God's promises were no good. It's that God's timing, God's way, God's method was not going to be Abram's timing, Abram's way or Abram's method. And that's okay. God told Abraham that he would make of him a great nation. Immediately, Abram made some assumptions about what this would mean and what this would look like. And that's fine. We do it all the time, don't we? If I tell my children, we are going to go to church today. Well, they naturally make some assumptions about that statement. They make assumptions about which church we're going to be in or which building we're going to be in. They make assumptions about what they're going to wear. And as a general rule, those assumptions are sound. We will, in fact, come to this building and we'll have an elevated formality of clothing on a Sunday morning. We're going to church. Those are valid assumptions. But at least one Sunday every year, when I say children, we're going to church this morning, they end up in a park in play clothes. And so while their assumptions are generally valid, that doesn't necessarily mean that it's always going to play out that way. It isn't what we would normally think of when we think about going to church, but that doesn't change the fact that on that Sunday that we meet at a park and play clothes, we're still going to church. And we do the same with God, don't we? We receive some measure of confidence in who God is and what He's doing and our part to play. And then we take that measure of confidence in what God is doing or what he expects or our part to play in it. And then we make a bunch of assumptions about what that means, about what it's going to look like, about how that's going to play out in my life, how long it will take, when it will happen. And the fact that it doesn't happen the way we expect it in no way invalidates God's faithfulness. But it can cause us to lose focus, can't it? When things don't work out the way we expected them to, it can cause us to jump to the conclusion that God has not been faithful. That because God did not do what we expected in the manner in which we expected it, that means that God has not been faithful to us. We can become fearful, unsettled, discouraged, vulnerable. Even to believe that God has failed in His promises because He failed to bring them about in the manner that we can understand or expect. And this is where I would like to present to you a second idea behind this statement that God makes to Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Certainly God protected Abram in Abram's day. He, as, God's, as Abram's shield, 
shielded Abram. Certainly, he blessed Abram in his day. He, as Abram's reward, rewarded Abram. But God did not say here explicitly, I will shield you and I will give you great rewards, did he? What did he say on that day? He said, fear not, Abram, I am thy shield. I am thy exceeding great reward. God described himself as the shield. God described himself as the reward. And I'd like you to think through this idea with me this morning. Remember back when we studied Abram leaving Haran and going to Canaan, we spoke a little about Paul's description of this event in Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews 11 verses 8 through 12, the Bible says this, by faith, Abraham when he was called to go out into a place which he should afterward receive for an inheritance, obeyed. And he went out, not knowing whither he went. By faith he sojourned in the land of promise, as in a strange country, dwelling in tabernacles with Isaac and Jacob, the heirs with him of the same promise. For he looked for a city which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God. So we read of Abram leaving his physical land to go to another physical place in the confidence that God would give him in that physical place an inheritance, a nation, a nation based upon a physical seed that would come from his loins. Abraham expected this, Abraham understood this, and Abraham obeyed. And he went out and he dwelled in tents, and his son dwelled in tents, and his son's son dwelled in tents with him. But it's verse 10 where we receive a bit of a perspective shift, isn't it? Now, there's no questioning, and we'll talk about this more over the coming weeks, there's no question that physical promises were there for Abram. Physical nation, a physical seed. There's no question of that. Yes, Abram was seeking to be established as a physical nation. Yes, Abram was seeking a posterity and a legacy. But the Bible tells us that the thing that Abram was actually seeking when he left Haran and he went down into that place of Canaan and he left his, his, his uh, safety nets and he left what he understood and he moved into what he did not, the thing he was actually seeking was a city which hath foundations, not whose builder would be him or his children or his children's children, or, or, or his posterity, but whose builder and maker is God. Paul says that what Abram was seeking when he obeyed God, when he left Haran, was not something that could actually be fulfilled in the land of Canaan at all. Or anywhere else on earth for that matter. Because as much as Abram was seeking for those rewards of an inheritance and of a blessing of a nation that came from God, in reality, this was only the outward manifestations of a heart of a man who was seeking the blessing which was God. Yes, there was a blessing that came from God, but that was not the ultimate blessing. The ultimate blessing was not the things that came from God. The ultimate blessing was the God who gave the things. God was the reward. God was the shield. God was not just the source of Abram's reward. God was Abram's reward. Abram did not leave Haran to seek reward through God. Abram left Haran to seek the reward that is God. Yes, Abram expected a child. We'll see that in the next verses. How could the things that God had said would come to pass come to pass if, God, if he did not have a child? 
Yes, Abram expected land, for how could a great nation come if there was not going to be a land in which for that nation to be established? But in the life of one who has understood and accepted that love that God has toward him, the love that we know is expressed through the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, the manner of life that leads unto joy and contentment is not the object of our relationship with God. Rather, the manner of life that leads to joy and contentment is the natural overflow, the natural side effect of a life that regards the reward not to be the things of this life, but the God behind the things. In other words, the joy and contentment that I find in living this life as God blesses me in this life is only a side effect. It's only a side effect of the reality that you are walking humbly with your God. That's the reward. And it is this perspective that calls us out of the vulnerability of unrealized expectations. The vulnerability of uncertain days. The vulnerability of difficult decisions. The vulnerability of trying relationships. And it puts us upon a different plane that allows us to live in a constancy of joy and of contentment in the midst of an ever-changing world, in the midst of ever-changing circumstances, in the midst of both good days and bad days. And how can it do that? Because my reward is not found in the things that I am looking for from God, nor is my reward found in the things that I already possess My reward is not even found in the realization of the promises that I fully expect God to produce within the scope of my life and circumstances, but rather my reward is that God himself is with me. That's my reward. Earlier we quoted a verse from the love of God. So let's keep the trend going and let's quote from another hymn as well. Horatio Spafford wrote a hymn once. You may know it. It's called It Is Well. When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot, thou hast taught me to say, it is well. It is well with my soul. What gives a man the confidence to find joy, peace, and contentment in the midst of circumstances in life which are by no means joyous, peaceful, or easy. If you don't know the story behind the song, I won't get into it today. The man was in a place that was by no means peaceful, joyous, or easy when he wrote those words. And it was not going to get better for him in the years to come. The key to such a state is to fundamentally reconsider just what it is that compels in your life joy, peace, and contentment. It's one thing to seek unto my God for the rewards of doing so. But what if I seek unto my God and the reward is finding Him? What if my joy and my peace and my confidence is not in the circumstances as they play out in my day-to-day life, but in the one who walks with me through those circumstances? What if, whether my lot, joyous or difficult, What if it's well with my soul? Is that enough? I am thy shield, God said, and thy exceeding 
great reward. Consider the words of Paul to this end in Philippians chapter 4, verses 11 through 13. Paul said, not that I speak in respect of want. The idea of want there is lacking those things that are necessary. Not, not the idea of lusting or desiring, but lacking. That's, the, that, that's the, the idea behind the word want here. For I have learned in whatsoever state I am therewith to be content. I know both how to be abased and I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed, both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ, which strengtheneth me. Paul says he has learned contentment in any state, in any condition. Christian, how is that possible? How is it possible for you to have joy and contentment in any state? How is it possible for you to be joyful and content in any circumstance, in any condition? Well, because, see, the reward that Paul had on that day was not the reward of circumstances. It was the reward of the God behind the circumstances. It was the idea that he knew that the Lord loved him and that God's thoughts towards him were good. So as long as he was doing what the Lord would have him to do, then he was in the place that the Lord wanted him in. And maybe he didn't understand it. And maybe he didn't even actually like it. But here's the thing. He was walking humbly with his God. And that's enough. As long as he had Christ... As long as he was right with Christ, as long as he was serving Christ, then he knew that he was protected and provisioned for the way. Christian, it is our human tendency to seek unto something to define our contentment. If only we had that one thing, then we could be content. Perhaps that thing is money or a standard of living or a spouse or children or friends or a good church or whatever it might be. And even as it relates to our Christian identity, we can fall into this idea that if only God would give me that one condition, if only God would bless me in that one particular way, if only God would give me victory over that one besetting sin, if only he would give me that particular spiritual gift or put me in this particular place, then I would know his favor. Then I would see his blessing and then I could be content in the place where I find myself. But when God called out to Abram on that day in Genesis 15, he told Abraham, I am thy shield. I am thy reward. Would it be enough for Abram to seek unto the true and living God and through that to be at peace? And then leave the rest to the God who started by saying, fear not. It is enough for me. Is it enough for me? that God has already expressed his love toward me through Jesus Christ on the cross? Is it enough for me that he has given me of his Holy Spirit, that he has sealed me into the day of redemption and both instructed and enabled me on how to seek his kingdom through loving God and loving one another? Is that enough that I might find my contentment in this and then trust that God will supply my needs, will direct me in the way that I should go so that whatever my lot I can boldly, confidently say, it is well with my soul, and so it is well with me. Would to God we would be this, Christians. Would to God that we as Christians would seek unto God, not simply as the source of our reward as we faithfully serve Him, but that we would rather seek unto God as the object of our reward through serving him. Would to God that he himself would be enough for us 
so that whatever God chooses for us, as long as we are seeking unto that city that hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, then we rest in that place of joy and of comfort, for we have the fullness of the thing for which we have sought, apart from circumstances, apart from blessings, apart from direction, apart from even knowing exactly what God has for us. We already have the fullness of that which we have sought for because we already have God. And His blessings are, at the very least, reserved in heaven for us. Now, as we wrap up our message today, I'd like to direct your attention a little bit further in Hebrews chapter 11. A few verses beyond where we stopped last time in relation to all of the examples of faith which Paul had given in the chapter to that point, Paul then says this, verses 13 through 16. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them afar off, and were persuaded of them, and embraced them, and confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things declare plainly that they seek a country. And truly, if they had been mindful of that country from whence they came out, they might have had opportunity to have returned. But now they desire a better country that is in heavenly. Wherefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. For he hath prepared for them a city. These all died in faith, having not received the promise. I'm going to uh, spoil a little bit of the story coming up here in Genesis. Um, Abram has that child. His name is Isaac. Isaac is a joy to him. Abram becomes that man of blessing. And yet, even though Abram becomes that man of blessing, and Abram has that child... Hebrews still tells us he died in faith having not received the promise. Abram, through all his flaws, stays faithful to God, keeps obeying, keeps serving, has that son, his son has that son. And even in the midst of all of those external blessings, even physically, he never saw the fullness of the land, the seed, and the blessing. He died in faith but having lived his life in obedience to the one who gave him that promise. Because he was convinced that even though he didn't understand the timetable, even though he didn't understand God's method, even though he didn't see it all come to pass, the God who had promised is in fact faithful. And had Abram wanted to, he could very well have gained children and houses and lands in other ways apart from the Lord. As a matter of fact, he even kind of tried it. We'll read about that. But the children and the houses and the lands were not the point, were they? Abram saw on the horizon a better country, something better than the things that this earth had to offer. And so he counted himself to be a stranger and a pilgrim, not just in the land to which God had sent him. As a matter of fact, Abram going to a land where he, was a, where he sojourned as a stranger and his son and his son's sons did as well, the whole point of that is a metaphor for the reality that we too are called to be strangers and foreigners. To go into a land that is not ours as we seek through God's assurances a better country whose builder and maker is God. 
And for this reason, the Bible says, God was not ashamed to be called their God. It's one of my favorite phrases in the entire scripture. Can you imagine? The God of all flesh, the holy God of the universe, perfect in holiness, the thrice holy God, not ashamed to be called your God. Is that not a reward? Is that not the reward? That that God is my God? I am my beloved. My beloved is mine. And it says instead he's prepared for them a city. We actually have a New Testament analog to that promise. He has prepared for them a city. Our Savior told us the same in John 14. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. In Genesis 15:1, God says to Abram, Fear not. In John 14, Jesus said to his disciples, Let not your heart be troubled. And it's all for the same reason. Because he's gone to prepare a place for us. And because as we root ourselves in that promise, as we seek unto that country, unto that city, which hath foundations, whose builder and maker is God, here's what we know, is regardless of the circumstances, that as we seek our Lord in the way that he has prescribed, it is well with our soul. And that is the reward. God compels Abraham in this day to see past the confusion of the circumstances within which he finds himself and rest his contentment upon God himself. And Hebrews 11 tells us that Abram did exactly that. And Jesus calls us unto the same. Let not your heart be troubled, not because Jesus has promised to make us happy, but because Jesus has gone to prepare a place for us. And if he's gone to prepare a place for us, then he will doubtless come again and receive us unto himself. That where he is, there we may be also. That's the reward, Christian. He's the reward, Christian. Fear not, Christian. Jesus Christ is your reward. And may this reality truly comfort our hearts in times of confusion, in times of vulnerability, times of unknown. What's going on, God? I don't understand, God. God says, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Let not your heart be troubled. Times of persecution, times of distress, times of lack, times of loss. Let not your heart be troubled. Fear not. I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. May we be reminded in this day, as Abram was in his own, that it is not what God can do for us that is the true reward of our faith, but rather it is God himself that is the true reward of our faith. And if it is, if it is well with me and if it is well with my God and me,
than it is well with my soul. And may God thus help us in our own days of unknown, in our own days of vulnerability, to find our God to be in himself more than enough, to find in him our peace, to find in him our joy, to find in him our rest, to find in him our contentment, and then through that be able to trust him for the days ahead. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.